0: Hi, my name is David Speed, and I'm Adam Brazier, and this is the Creative Rebels podcast, featuring inspirational stories and practical
1: advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world.
0: Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been
1: a better time in history to make a career from being creative.
0: So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast.
2: Welcome back, Rebels. Hello, I want to talk about um, something important. Oh God, you got straight into that. What, yeah. what do you want to talk about? Content. Oh, content. What about content specifically?
0: Right, so at the moment, everyone's panicking because they're like, I've got to be producing content 24-7.
2: Yeah. Do you? Yes. Well, not 24-7, obviously, because that's crazy. But in today's society on the internet, I feel like content is so important and you need to be creating as much as possible. It depends on like how early you are in your journey, like what you want to do but you need to be making as much content as possible around the thing that is you want to do. I think if you've got time to watch something, time to consume something, you've got time to create that thing. And it's like, if you're super passionate about something, because a lot of people will be like, okay, I, I love this. This is what I want to spend my life doing. And then you go on their Instagram and they haven't posted for three weeks. There's like one post here and there. And it's like, well, if you want it that much, you need to be putting out the content. You need to be getting the awareness out there that your business, your thing exists and keep up with the audience as well, because the way with the Instagram algorithm, especially, if you don't post in weeks, then next time you post, it's a lot less chance that it's going to be seen. Like Instagram wants you to be on its platform as much as possible. So it kind of punishes you if you go away from it.
0: Yes. But think back to our history. Mm-hmm. So we created a lot of content in the form of our website. But once that was done, we didn't really have to come back to it every week or every day and repost. It was, I mean, we, we were kind of updating the blog, but really like the content was kind of there and it was kind of fixed and 99% of our work was coming in through our website. And then we spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, networking with the right people. So, because I, mean, I mean, for us to create, and for a lot of creatives listening, to create your piece, like say you're an oil painter that shit takes forever to dry like if you're you might be working on six pieces and you might not have finished pieces to go i mean you can always do progress progression shots and and like a a video of you in your space or or like just talking people through the process and what's going on there but for the actual finished final product the thing that you're probably going to sell that's going to take a long time it's the same for us like i mean it's going to be a day minimum of hard work to create Mm -hmm. a painting to then post on social media site. That's going to be seen for a couple of seconds. So I think whilst content is really important, it's important in the right places. And I think this constant pressure to be continually updating Instagram when at the moment the algorithm is at an all time low and the, the kind of organic reach and the chance of being discovered, like for it being a flag, the chance of you being discovered and getting work from your Instagram it is quite low, so maybe that time is better spent updating your website and and then learning about SEO and pushing that out with when you've got a spare hour rather than because I always used to advocate like I'll oh, go through the hashtags and but I'm wondering now whether your time is probably better spent on like making sure your website is banging and then and then pushing that out and then going out and meeting people in real life because i know there's um cake and yoga club that follows Mm -hmm. us on instagram like she's hitting the pavement with flyers she's going out telling people in whatever way you can but getting caught up in one platform and spending all of your time on it especially when that platform is not really rewarding you at the moment i don't know that that's a good use of time
2: i think it really depends where your audience comes from like for us When we started Graffiti Life, there was no other companies really doing this. So it was quite easy for us to rank really highly for the term graffiti. It didn't take too long for us to get up there. Yes, it took a lot of hard work at the start. But if you're going into something like photography or um, just something where there's a lot more people in that field who've been doing this for years, like we were fortunate in the fact that we created an industry, whereas to say if you're making jewellery, it's going to be really, really hard. Like you're not going to rank on the first page of Google as a solo person, you're just not, there's not going to be the chance to do that. The only thing you could could do there would be to pay for ads to be able to appear on the first page. But as a really small creator, unless you get really niche with your content, which again comes back to content, it's like as a niche, if you've got a niche that's really saturated, you need to go really, really long tail with it and write blog posts on, say, if you're a jewellery designer. What does
0: long tail mean? I've never understood that.
2: So long tail is basically, so short, short tail keyword would be so if jewellery is example, jewellery. So if you typed in jewellery or jewellery London, that's a relatively saturated thing. So long tail would be if you did a post on jewellery in the style of bees, in, because that's the jewellery of bees, um, jewellery of the style of bees found in London. Because then it's like, that 's really niche you 're really kind of narrowing it down, so yeah if someone 's looking are. for
0: that thing, then they 're probably going to find you because that 's such a specific
2: term, yeah guess yeah, okay, so that 's so kind of like where long tail goes, and you still need to create content around that if you want to get found. I think making content should only really you should do it to get found it shouldn 't just be something you do to just entertain the current audience. It should always be the idea of well, how can this get new people in and I think if you 're a painter. Or you're someone who takes months to do a single piece like because of the way the algorithm works like the algorithm is the algorithm like you can't change that you're just gonna have to work to it so when you put something up if you can only put something up once every two months no one's gonna see it so how can you keep people engaged during that period of time how do you stop people forgetting about you like you've got so many people on instagram you're looking at so many different things all the time if you're an artist there's a good chance they could go and start looking at another artist who's posting more stuff. So that's where stories can come in really useful. Like Content doesn't have to be a really refined, beautiful piece of something. It can just be a story post or 10 story posts a day. It's like there's a jewellery designer called Tom Jewellery, shout out to Lucy, um, who regularly updates the stories. And that's making her audience get to know her and like her. And I think that's just as important as having a good product it's having a likeable brand it's having that kind of key person of influence that person that people want to be attached to whether they like the product or not you're, you're their go-to person that they think of when they think of that thing yeah because you're in their head all the time so if you're not posting regular content you'll be, you'll be forgotten and the chances are that your audience say if you are a jewellery designer probably follows other jewellery companies if they just follow you I'd be very very surprised and if this other company is putting more stuff out, it's like you're constantly competing for attention. So how do you stay in people's minds?
0: I suppose you stay in people's minds by making content that's different. Because mm. if it's just the same, then they, they might even assume when they see the post that it is your competitor's. Because if everyone's making the same work, then then you can't differentiate yourself. So I suppose it's it's making that stuff that and and then a um, surefire way to grow is to create something that just I don't want to use the word viral, but but something that catches on that captures people. A, people's imagination hmm. and that's where your creativity comes into it like you've just got to think differently and we're just about to roll into an episode with paul who uh is from contagious who and their their whole thing is studying like pieces of content that have done that that they've been become contagious that people have, have shared them and yeah. it's, it's spread around he's he's written a whole book of like the 10 commandments of of how to do that but i mean things that work for us in the past is nostalgia when we've painted mm-hmm. pieces that that have like conjured that up for people that's always worked super well for us gets shared a bunch of times Um, and then I mean with the podcast it's it gets shared so much between people who send it to people who they think are going to benefit from it Um, and so that so every week we're we're producing a piece of content that is potentially contagious
2: yeah I think if you can create something that people want to share it's like if we look through our Instagram insights it's really interesting to see which posts people do share and which posts people save because it's like The way to grow is to get other people to share stuff for you. As soon as you can do that, then you've got a great product, great brand that you don't actually have to do. You just post it and everyone else shares it for you. Like you look at um, artists and creatives who are really successful, they can post a piece of work and then you'll start to see it pop up in different places on Instagram because you're like, this page has reshared it, this page has reshared it. And it's like that original creator isn't having to make more content because someone else is making that content for them, which if you can get that to happen, that's great. So it's like, how can you create something that you know that as soon as someone looks at it, they're going to, oh, I know someone else who would like to see this.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned our Instagram there. At Rebels Create, by the way, we can look at our insights and we see that when we post, like, oh, here's a guest that's on the show, it's like that's just information for people, so they're like, oh, okay, I know who's on the show this week. That's fine and good. Doesn't really get shared. Doesn't really get saved. Then when we post um, those slider posts that we've been doing, that's kind of like little tips and tricks, and you slide through, and and there's it kind of tells a story. Those are shared. Like, so, so much, much like yeah. a crazy amount. And they're sent to people and they're saved for people to come back to and refer to later. And that's because that content is not just broadcasting and saying, look, we've done a thing. It's saying, here's how you can do a thing. If you save this or send it to someone else, you're empowering them to do a thing.
2: Yeah, I think it's like almost giving a level of value to everything. Like Looking at this post you've made, this art you created, whatever it is you're going to post and put out there and think how much value is this bringing to someone else? if it's just for two seconds as they're scrolling through Instagram to think, oh, that's nice, I'll give it a heart, like that's not that much value, value creating like two seconds worth of kind of benefits. Candy, to, yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you can create something that actually then people could then take away, learn from, put into action, that could potentially be hours worth of work that they're putting into that. So how can you inspire that rather than just like, oh, that's a nice picture, scroll past, because there's someone else who's put an equally nice picture an inch below it.
0: Yeah, so I, I think the two most important things for me is is figure out your platform. And there are platforms out there where organic reach is ridiculous at the moment, LinkedIn and TikTok. And then working also working out like who is your target audience because are your ta- target audience using TikTok? Are your target audience maybe on LinkedIn? Are they on Instagram? And, and that's that's the place where you're gonna have to dedicate all of your time to. And then once you know who that end person is that you're trying to reach, that audience that you're trying to build around you, reverse engineer from there and work out what it is they want like that's what this podcast is every week the reason we've just spoken to you for 15 minutes about content is because we know because you send us messages about it we know that you need to know about content creation like is it important how much of my time should i be putting into it so so we're just delivering what you guys want to hear about. And that's how the podcast is successful. So know your audience, know what they want and deliver it to them. So yeah, this week's episode is with Paul Kemp Robertson, who is the co-founder of Contagious. Contagious is a multi-platform marketing resource, uh, which basically means they kind of report on marketing and the industry. And Paul is a global marketing expert. And his book, The Contagious Commandments, I really, really enjoyed. It's um, We talk a lot about it in, in the episode He basically breaks down what it takes to make a brand or a story or a message go contagious and then impact the
2: world through that. In this episode, we talk about making interesting content, taking risks and creating joy.
3: Life's complicated. It's a little bit crap at the moment with Brexit and all the rest of it. And I think like little pockets of joy and innovation kind of really stand out. And where do they come from? By being brave and doing something different and being prepared to, yeah, kind of just take a risk. Hi Paul. Hello, hello. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: So you are co-founder of an agency called Contagious. Mm -hmm. Um, When did you guys start and why?
3: Okay, so, um, well, technically, we're, we're not an agency. I need to... I wonder, as I was saying that, I was like, <laughs> here's you, You've, you've nailed a problem that probably a lot of um, entrepreneurs or small businesses will, particularly in this day and age, kind of find hard. It's like, how do you define what it is that you do? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, basically, we, we were founded in 2004. Um, so that was back in the days where things like Facebook and YouTube didn't exist as businesses, where phones weren't particularly smart. Words like viral were just kind of creeping into the, the lexicon. So there was still kind of, you know, the sort of sound of dial-up very much in in people's ears and um so contagious started it's really it's it's an editorial resource with a consultancy um attached and um it's basically, we just, uh, my background was kind of trade press uh, looking at advertising from a creative point of view in the days before the internet. I'm not sure if uh, you were aware of those things even <laughs> existing, but um, this is a day where we want to try and show the best ideas that were happening in kind of creativity across advertising, music videos, and where it was where things like post-production was exploding and getting interesting. And the only way of seeing uh, like the really best stuff globally was either going to Cannes Lions every year and waiting a year or having someone trundle into your office with these massive videotapes and physically showing you them. So we actually created something pre-internet that was um, like a tv show on a vhs cassette that we distributed globally with a little magazine attached um called shots which is still going um and i was kind of like the runner who became editor and then because having this position a really privileged position of looking at all the best stuff worldwide and having someone said to us once it was like you know with like the difference between vogue and Elle is that you have a very strong point of view on one of the magazines and it was like i like you guys because you've got a strong point yeah. of view and we used to put so many noses out of joint by not showing stuff it had to be really yeah. kind of high creative standards and you know that kind of stuff so anyway so because of being in that job um, I ended up working for Leo Burnett globally in Chicago um, for something called the, the Creative Exchange Department. So again, my job was to kind of look at the best stuff that was happening in advertising worldwide, help on pitches, run kind of creative training, creative councils and and so on. So again, a really kind of unique, interesting job. But then it got to the point of, I was kind of six years at Leo Burnett, three in Chicago, three in London. And um, I felt I'd sort of done everything that I was expected to do, of taking what used to be like an analog resource and making it digital and creating an intranet and whatever. And I had a really good time, but. Just got that kind of itch. And um, it was myself and my former boss at Shots were kind of sitting in the Admiral Codrington pub in South Ken, behind the Leo building. And I think he'd sold his stake and, in, in that business and wasn't in, involved anymore. I was obviously six years out and independent, had this sort of global perspective from Leo Burnett. And it was like, God, like if if we were doing that job that we used to do, things have changed so much. And if you look at it from a, like an advertising industry point of view at the time, as I say, this was like 2000 and early 2004 when we were thinking about it. And um, we thought like everyone's still obsessed with the way it's always been done, like 12 week media plans, teleprint, radio, like the trade press are obsessed with like account wins and gossip and who's the celeb creatives and whatever. And it's like, it's almost like the audience has run ahead of the advertiser. They've suddenly started creating their own content. You can think of things like blogs has started to emerge and people were suddenly questioning like the environmental practices of companies or this word called radical transparency phrase called radical transparency was emerging so you can see all this kind of change of behavior and it's like in my job at Leo Burnett which was to which was to look at creativity kind of globally and emerging trends it's like I don't get a lot of this stuff I was like you know born in 1967 we didn't do computer science at school I think so again it was that sense of like there's all these wonderful new things that are happening from a technology point of view all these new behaviors where consumers are sort of taking charge and having their own opinions, creating their own content, hacking content and whatever. So it's like if we were back doing what we used to do, which was just about creativity, we'd make it very different because the world's changed, but the the industry particularly the trade press, hasn't. So that's where the idea for Contagious came from. And I think, because I'd been agency side for six years, we've done a lot of work with with clients around effectiveness of creativity. Um, So all these studies looking at ads that would win awards, like the 100 most awarded ads globally. And we'd always get in touch with the agencies and the clients behind them to sort of say, well, how effective were they in the marketplace? Um, And do all these studies. And there was always a massive correlation between ads that are kind of successful creatively at award shows and impact in the market. So, and the IPA now do it. You know, it's a kind of recognised thing.
1: Because I know there's, there's lots of agencies who their goal is almost mm. to go and win awards, whereas other people mm-hmm. will just go and try and do work that is really drives them.
3: Yeah. How do you balance the <laughs> two of those? Um, I think agencies are obsessed with awards, partly because it's one of those sort of industries that the people that work in it, I include myself in that, it's one of those things where... Um, there's a lot of frustrated filmmakers, writers, artists, or whatever. It's one of those industries that um, I think you know, John Haggerty talks about. The um, America has like you knock on a front door and sell something. In England, yeah. there's this thing called the, the servants' entrance or the you know the kind of service entrance, which is around the back. And it's almost like selling and advertising and marketing. It's kind of almost like a, a grubby kind of thing to do, almost mm. psychologically. So um, I think that agencies and so on are obsessed with awards partly because it can kind of validate what they do and it's one of those things they can show their parents <laughs> and i know you don't understand what it is that i do or i might slave for 12 months and actually only create three commercials but one of those has won an award isn't it great but i think on a, on a serious level i think people do actually acknowledge because of all these studies that you know agencies have done or the ipa have done that there generally is a, a is, is a correlation between stuff that's winning awards that you recognise amongst your peers as the best in the world or yeah. best in that category, chances are, and as I say, we did this study over 15 years at Leah Burnett and there was always between 80 and 90% proof, um, it does work because it makes your brand kind of famous. I think also really strong creative ideas are also very efficient because... As people receiving those ideas, I, I keep, I hate, I try and avoid using the word consumer as much as possible because it's awful because it's, it's people ultimately, yeah. and uh, you know the idea of being a target or a consumer is very, you know, kind of old school. But um, it's almost like you know stuff, stuff that kind of motivates real people. Um, you're, if, if it's a really strong piece of work you're more likely to want to watch it again and again so mm-hmm. you don't get bored if you see a shit ad on telly you're much more likely to either fast forward go make a cup of tea whatever but yeah. the stuff that's interesting you will A kind of watch it and be prepared to watch it but also you'll pass it on and that's you know one of the greatest kind of um, effects is that if you get sent a piece of work from someone in your network that you trust and whatever then you're much more likely A to watch it but there's also these studies that show that if you're recommended something by someone that you know and love trust, you're something like 37% more likely to stay loyal to that brand over time. You know so that the, really starts to build. On build the flip up. side of that, do you
1: know what mm. the stats are around adverts mm. that annoy people? Because, oh there's, God, yeah. <laughs> because there's certain adverts that like, come on, for example, like every nationwide advert right. where they do some singing. I'm just like <laughs> our whole household is just like oh get no get off get it off, it off, it off and we no, like we get to stage and we would mute it every time the adverts right. came on. Yeah, and that must have a really like negative impact on that mm-hmm.
3: brand because potentially I suppose for them it's like the um, law of averages, and I mean that's one of the reasons we did Contagious because it was like 90 percent of advertising is we said right from the beginning in issue one is like it's polluting, it's noisy, it's. Ir- I once I wrote an article once when I first went to Lebanon Burnett in Chicago about my perception of America. American television advertising. And it's like, commercials are like angry wasps. They literally <laughs> just come at you and you just can't kind of avoid them, sort of thing. And I think that um that's a problem. That's one of those sort of, you know, it's not even a guilty secret, it's an open secret that, you know, a lot of content in advertising is either cliche or and that's partly, and it's something we talk about in the book, it's partly because marketers are conditioned to hate, they hate risk and they want to avoid risk. They want to avoid uncertainty, which is why they'll stick to rules and and cliches and and, and practices. So category boundaries and stay within that. Um, But to your point about people hating stuff, I think it's a thing where it's something that our editorial director at Contagious Alex is always banging on about and about, well, we talk often, you know, within this sort of EC1 postcode or Soho or whatever about, you know, creativity and advertising and it's about where technology is going. People talk about VR experiences and AR and social media influences and whatever. But it's like, well, how does it play in Didcot? You know, yep, Didcot yep. is statistically the most average town in the UK for whatever okay. reason. So it's like, OK, people using VR headsets to make purchases in Didcot. No. Right. So I think we sometimes get into a kind of London media bubble to a certain mm-hmm. extent and we have certain tastes and certain expectations. But it's like I know that my dad, for instance, in North Yorkshire probably really enjoys the Nationwide Ads or, you know, my, my, my sister in Enfield might think it's quite cool. She's got young kids and they yeah. sing along or whatever. So it's just kind of different different perceptions, I guess. Yeah, actually, just because you don't like it doesn't mean the rest of the country, <laughs> yeah. does it? But also sometimes people are prepared to actually alienate audiences because it's like partly it's like lodging into, like, once you build a yeah. memory structure, and that's how a lot of advertising works, isn't it necessarily that you kind of love the advertising, but they just want to get the brand name lodged because you've got so much choice, and you might not necessarily be loyal. But when you're suddenly faced with choices on a shelf or behind a bar, yeah. and you've got to make a quick decision, and the price is right, then that name that's stuck in your yeah. memory, you might just automatically go for it. Yeah, I'd love
1: to know how much mm-hmm. of that is actually thought out, and how mm-hmm. much is just a happy coincidence. <laughs> because like sometimes, yeah. like the ads that you don't like, you're like, are we going to uh, like? It would be great to think that they made you purposely not like it, so then they could sort yeah. you out down the line. And yeah, have yeah. It in your
3: I don't think many marketers sort of set out think, "Right, I'm going to really annoy <laughs> people, and make a really <laughs> shitty ad." But I think you see where it just—it's ads that are just, you know, defined by committee. Or it's something again we sort of talk at Contagious about. Um, one of our commandments was, you know, don't ask what's in it for for us; ask what's in it for them. Yeah, and so many people get that wrong. It's like you can almost like see the. The, 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 the strategy flesh kind of seeping out of the, the commercial tights to, yeah. to use a really bad analogy but do you know what I mean it's almost like you, you can see exactly what they're trying to achieve and what the brief said and they've got so hemmed in that they just want to yeah basically bash across what well, our KPIs are. Oh, we have to tell them this and we have to reinforce this and we have to get yeah. the logo and we have to whatever and it just becomes very mechanical and then it's almost like creativity by numbers and that's where it starts to get annoying so I don't think people necessarily set out to destroy their brand or alienate <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then, people but but then yeah, if you look just,
0: at uh, like the Nike campaign with Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. that that purposely alienated a section of the states yeah. and I think their, their profits were like and increased, increased dramatically was, yeah, over through I mean, that campaign. That was interesting
3: I think we talk about um, that in this context of divisive values um, I think it's a sort of phrase that we coined um, and I think that was one of the things where nike in a really privileged position anyway i think because obviously you know a massive brand and, and and so on but again that was quite you know dangerous for them but what was smart about it was that um obviously you know he he's one of their brand spokespeople they believe in him and the stand that he was taking and I think they they looked at that as a long-term investment or idea because they knew that they were going to rock the boat and alienate people. But then Phil Knight, obviously behind it was quite quiet. And I thought it was really smart because he kind of waited. And there was a massive furore people were... And it was often like, you know, like in the kind of classically... It was like the Trump-supporting yeah, kind of yeah. demographic in the US were burning their Nikes yeah. and <laughs> exploding on Twitter and all that sort of stuff. And... Um, I think he came out and said, look, you know, as a brand, you just can't sit on the fence. You've got to have a perspective. People who believe in you want you to believe in the same things that they believe in. And we have to take a a stand. And if you sit on the fence, then you you don't mean anything to anyone. And therefore, if if you stand for nothing, then you've got no one to stand with you kind of thing. So I think he just, more or less the subtext of what he was saying was like, you are going to piss people off by doing ads like this and taking a stand. But you just have to piss the right people off. And I think their their share price took a wobble in the first few days afterwards. Yeah. And everyone's like, ah, you know, Nike, this is a purpose-driven advertising. This is why you shouldn't do it, and they should be. But um, I think in the long term, if you now look at their share price over time – then but also for me it's not just about the advertising from a sort of external point of view like to me if i worked for nike if i was a young kid working in a store in chicago or pennsylvania whatever and they did that and i was like a young urban kid i think yeah they've got my back i really appreciate this how i feel this is what i believe in and i think so you know when brands do that it's just as much of their own internal advocates as as much as it is for external
1: yeah because if you can if you can appeal to your own people and make your own people happy first mm. then the whole world's going to see that and like One going to want to work for you so you've got better employment coming from at the back of that and also it just makes the brand stronger and makes people care about it more yeah
3: exactly so and I think Nike obviously they're in a privileged position but we also I think there's a story that I really like and I think we sort of mentioned in the book and upon we do sort of speeches around bravery and advertising and so on and um, it's something that Coke did in um, Brazil and there's a really kind of horrible kind of homophobic slur that's been around for a while which is um, this Coke is a Fanta which is basically this man is not a real man because he's gay, basically. So this Coke is a Fanta. So Coke thought, right, okay, we can't, we can't have this. Yeah. You know, this is not real. So they basically, at Pride Festival, um, they did this thing where, we, we would call it, I think in the book, you know, we refer to um, asking heretical questions. And it's, you've got like the most iconic product in the world is possibly the red Coke can. Like, everyone recognises it yeah. globally. So they basically took the red Coke can and put Fanta in it, and they changed the packaging. So it said, this Coke is a Fanta, so what? And what I loved about the idea was that they gave it first to their employees. So their employees actually went out. They were given a day off work or whatever. They actually went out onto the streets of... In the pride marches and festivals and whatever handing out these cans and it's generated like so much because all, all the guys in the, you know all the people guys and gals in the parades were all holding these cans and whatever and it got something like two and a half billion media impressions and off the charts but again it's like you you invest in the people that work for you and they were they they were the ones that were empowered yeah, to yeah. you know kind of spread the message and, and so on and i thought that was a really strong signal and it's like if brands it's almost that like thing is like there's a JFK quote, which was you know if not us then who and if not now then when, and I think we've got to this stage now where life is like politics and so so divisive that if it's almost like brands have to take a stand because they've got that unique kind of creative power and muscle, because you've got the recognition and the trust. Everyone knows that, you know, what Coke is, is a brand and what it stands for, and it's not going to go away tomorrow. They've got the media muscle, because they can spend money on yeah. advertising, but divert it into other initiatives. Um, and they've also got the audience, you know, and the creativity through their agency. So you look at that perfect storm and, you know, why, why not? You know? Yeah, cause it's kind of a
1: political party, aren't they? If you think about Nike, yeah?
3: like that is such an establishment that people will
1: like, people will probably die for it. Some people will, <laughs> because they just love it so much. Yeah. And it's like, they'll fully get behind whatever they support. Yeah.
3: Well, I love, you know, we talk about um, Patagonia in in, in the... I and mean, it's almost become a cliche to talk about Patagonia, because they're... Oh, but I think they're just, you know... We talk about organising principle. It's our sort of chapter one, which is about, you know, have a really strong organising principle. People talk about mission and North Star and purpose or whatever. We're like, no. You know... The, the way we look at it. it's like, what's your organizing principle? So why do you actually exist as a company, like for, for you, for your employees, the people that buy your stuff? And then what, what is that? And everything that that is then reflects, you know, how you behave, what your corporate social responsibility, what your advertising, what's your HR policies, all that kind of stuff. And I think Patagonia, theirs has kind of evolved over the years, but their current mission statement or organizing principle is to use business to help save our home planet. And they're a clothing company. Because they're founded by obviously mountaineers, and they believe in like the pristine kind of beauty and value of nature and all that kind of stuff. But over time, and this is where people often think that purpose is really flaky, and they take the piss out of brands that try and have a. It's like you're a toothpaste brand. Why are you trying to talk to me about you know kind of uh, equal rights or whatever? Just get on and make toothpaste. But I think for Patagonia, they've done things over a period of time. So starting with um, on Black Friday a few years ago, um, that's the day where obviously it's an absolute retail feeding frenzy, yeah. and everything goes mental in America. They took out these ads across all of the big newspapers that had a picture of their best-selling like fleece jacket. And it just said, do not buy this product. And it was like, don't give in. Don't." The, the last thing the world needs is Black Friday, so don't give in to the consumer madness. Climb a mountain, walk the dog, be with your family, don't buy stuff. And that was the first kind of thing, ooh, you know, what are they up to? And they've done all sorts of stuff where... Um, but I mean their sale yeah. was exploded when they did that though right probably yeah because yeah. people again <laughs> yeah. yeah you know and they've, they've done things like trying to push the industry forward so they've created a beer like a Patagonia branded beer working with this kind of craft operative yeah. in, in Seattle whatever and they're saying we're doing it because no one else is and it's got it uses like this long Grain that's sort of doesn't need it's got it's basically um, regenerative agriculture practices, so it doesn't need um, pesticides so and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they're saying we're doing because no one else is, and we've kind of shown that to some of our alcohol clients. Like, oh fuck, we should have done that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, well why didn't you? And it's because your organising principle is like to. Uh, connects people or have yeah, fun yeah. or sponsor yeah. football or whatever it is, and it's not thinking bigger and beyond. So they're sort of doing stuff like that. They're suing the American administration because Trump allowed suddenly all these um, lands in, like, national parks. Yes. He allowed companies to come in and do oil and fracking yeah. and whatever. So the president of um, Patagonia wrote an article on their website and Medium It's basically... Challenging, so like the president is stealing your land, you realize what's happening. And they're now part of a, a legal case, they've started sponsoring democratic candidates in lands or states where the, the national parks are going to be kind of disrupted by oil drilling and whatever. So they've really taken a stand. And it's like, well, because brands can, because they've got, you know, in their case, shops everywhere, they've got ads, they've got the website, they've got that, but they've got that permission because they've built it up authentically over time. So you can kind of believe in what they're doing, but you know, there's a lot of power. There to get the message across and, you know. and I,
0: I think it goes back to what you said at the beginning when we were talking about how um people see advertising as as dirty mm. and um and certainly i mean we like without advertising we mm. wouldn't be here today like yeah. it's formed the core of our business mm. and i think it's just humans are always going to make things and do things mm-hmm. and then they're going to want to tell other people about them and then it's our job then to consume that And decide which direction we want to go. It's like like you love a Coke, but you know when you drink, because you've got the information now. It's not like the 80s where it's like, (laughs) have a healthy Coke. It's like, no, I know this is packed with sugar. What's that? (laughs) It's like, you know, it's packed with sugar. It's not great for you. And you'll make the decision of conscious choice. Yeah, I'm prepared to go for this. Yeah. And so I I just think like advertising is not going anywhere because we all need to tell everyone Mm. what
3: we make. Yeah, I think if you think about the essence of brand, you know, if you take it back to its original meaning, it's all about um, recognising either a symbol or a logo. So I think in the book we mentioned like, if you take advertising back to the beginning, people talk about, you know, kind of cave paintings or whatever. But the first ads were um, prostitute sandals in ancient Greece you know, these have these kind of little symbols or messages and they would leave them in the sand and whenever they walked people could follow and they would, you um, like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, early advertising. But, um, so a combination of kind of like visual, the sort of visual semiotics yeah. of a, s- a sign but also, um, the trust that that service is going to deliver. <laughs> so yeah. In the sense, if I follow these footprints, I'm going to get kind of what I want. God, I'm going down a real rabbit hole here, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think um, also what we're trying to get at with an advertising is to try and define what it actually means and what that content is. And I think that particularly with a lot of young people, I think they've accepted that you know there's so many choices. Life is hard. It's expensive. They've got you know no money so therefore brands are almost this kind of gateway to experiences yeah. you know you think about festivals and and concerts and and experiences around retail or what brands will do to like kind of you know release things or connect with fans and i think people accept now that that brands and advertising um is a way of actually getting unique experiences that they wouldn't necessarily get elsewhere or to make things kind of slightly cheaper for them or Whatever. So we're sort of trying to say, well, if brands can start creating experiences or services or tools or kind of unique things, mm-hmm. then um, you know that's a better way than just hammering them with a message that is just bombarding them and they've got no kind of two-way traffic and can't can't kind of connect back to or comment yeah. on or. Because I think whatever.
1: like it's like if you experience something, you'll generally remember that forever. It's like we do podcasts in person because the amount of interviews and stuff we've had over the phone and yeah. I couldn't tell you what that person's name was. Right. I couldn't really remember it. But since you're in person, yes. you've got like a visual thing that's like really links in your brain. Because yeah. so it must be a human thing for meeting
3: other people. Yeah, yeah. I think absolutely right. It's that psychology, and but yeah. also it's a sense of... Um, connection but and and trust as well because i did a webcast once um a couple of weeks ago It was the first time i'd ever done it and i'm used to speaking on stage i'm used to doing workshops and whatever and i did this webcast thing where it was just a mic like literally my laptop yeah. and i couldn't i knew there was 125 people watching and i hated it weird, i absolutely it? hated it i thought like, are they laughing are they like disappearing are they snoring whatever i just got no no reaction no sense and it's the same way I suppose you know despite all the the sort of angst around flying and so on that people still fly from a different continent to attend an event or a meeting or whatever because it is that 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 human connection I think
1: as well just in terms of like the way your brain remembers stuff if it's Mm -hmm. just one sense that's experiencing it yes or like too. Uh, then it's like you're very limited in your brain of how the connections are made. Whereas yeah. if you experience it in a lot of different ways, you touch, feel it, smell it, see it, like all of those come together, and then mm-hmm. loads of things could remind you of that moment exactly. at another point. Yeah. So I think yeah, the, even though it might cost more, say if mm-hmm. it costs double to put on that event compared mm-hmm. to doing this, just like fixed advertising. Yeah, you're right. The longevity in someone's brain mm-hmm. will be so much. Like so much stronger. Yeah. So like, if you could measure that, then I suppose that would be a really powerful tool.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think there's something um, Cornell University. I think we I think we talk about it in the book where um, it's called the um, hedonic return an hedonic treadmill or whatever, but basically it's that it's almost become, you know, a sort of off, like quite a pat statement about, oh, young people enjoy experiences more than things yeah, or yeah. we've reached peak stuff. So it's all about experiences. And it's true because <laughs> what they talk about is that um, people, you know, you think that you're really obsessed about having expensive furniture or objects or status symbols and you crave all these amazing objects and the argument they make and they use um a wooden floor they'll say someone might think like i've got a really expensive hardwood polished wooden floor that's cost me twenty thousand dollars aren't i awesome and then you love it for about two weeks and then after about two three weeks it becomes the thing you walk across yeah. to get to the kettle you know it just blends in whereas they compare that to the experience of watching um a cheetah like seeing a cheetah hunt at dawn in the serengeti or whatever is like the, the residual kind of value that that puts in your brain yeah. is so much more valuable as a human being over time than an expensive floor that makes you look cool for like two weeks or whatever and i think it's the same like brands have sort of latched onto that so we took, um i think we featured on our sort of our contagious io platform which is our sort of digital news um, resource membership resource this idea from china for nike so again the proposition the problem is like people are not shopping as much as they used to because Shopping malls are boring and shit, and everyone wants to go online, and you know that um, getting dragged around the shops is not the thing you necessarily want to do. So they wanted to launch this new trainer, um, and it's like, well, it's really good, it's really bouncy, it's like amazing properties, but unless people actually get it on, then how do we sell it sort of thing. So they create, and it is Nike, so they have got money, but I accept. But their, their attitude is that in order for us, to, we are a Goliath, but we have to constantly behave like a David to stay relevant and connect and so on. So they do all these ideas that feel quite expensive, but I think could be replicated quite easily buying smaller companies yeah. if you just sort of scale it down but so they did this thing where they took over sort of retail spaces and um created this kind of game that so you have these screens in front of you you're on a treadmill and they would scan a photo of you before you went in and create an avatar and then your avatar was put into the game and then you basically the game replicated what the shoe could do like you know running bouncing jumping whatever so you were part of the game and like anticipating and experiencing it competing against other people um so you enjoyed it as an experience when you finished they gave you like a 20 second video clip so what are you going to do with that you're going to share it with your mate but they said that the actual experience of being in this like multi-sensory to your point experience that the actual rate of people buying the shoes was double what it normally is because it's that sense of you know involve me and i'm going to really kind of
1: invokes a lot more of an emotion rather than just uh Oh, yes, I'm going to buy this, get a little endorphin rush for the short period. Yes. But then every time I see those shoes in future, mm-hmm. it's going to bring me back to a good time that I had. Yeah. It's like when you go on holiday and you buy a fridge magnet. Mm-hmm. They're awful quality. <laughs> like, no one ever really wants them, oh. but you buy one, you stick it on your fridge. You're right. And then you look at that in two years' time, you'll be like, oh, that takes me back oh. to being there. Yes.
3: Well, the Cornell thing I mentioned, they talk, they've got a really nice phrase, and it's, um, they talk about um, prospect and retrospect. So if you're going to go to an event or an experience or a holiday or whatever, then you get just as much value out of anticipating it and looking forward to it. Then you've got the actual thing itself, which you're yeah. going to love and be in the moment of. But then it's the, the retrospect. So you've got that residual you know, value over time. And I'm exactly the same as you. We went to Costa Rica in the summer and I bought this really cheesy um, Costa Rican number, card number plate with yeah. a frog on it. And it's awful. And the kids are, why are you buying that? And it's like, it's exactly your reason. I know that it's stuck in the study. And when I look at it, it's like, you just flood it all back. And, yeah.
1: And it's yeah. amazing how just seeing one little thing can just open this window in your brain to mm-hmm. just really take you back to that exact moment. Yeah, exactly.
3: Which is what we're saying is why brands, you know, have got this opportunity to, like, redefine what it is when you connect with with people and mm-hmm. redefine what advertising is by creating these kind of experiences. And I think that that's where people have started to change their relationship with, with brands because they don't see, like, they might see... Um, like a commercial is a little bit grubby or unnecessary, but once you've given like this unique experience, it's almost like there's like okay, there's a quid pro quo, mm. and I think people almost expect brands to be part of their cultural kind of journey now.
1: Um, yeah, uh, what what do you kind of think about? So obviously now we've got the internet and mm-hmm. targeted ads on the internet, you can get so specific with exactly who you're targeting. Yeah. So obviously with a TV, you're putting out to uh, who you think's watching that. It could mm-hmm. be a huge demographic. It's not really specific. Mm-hmm. What's your? I think kind you called of,
0: it spray and pray. In
1: spray the book, and pray yeah. is TV, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and now you've
3: got um, well, yeah, personalized. It's programmatic, and it's kind of it's called um, yeah, data driven, individual data driven marketing or personalization at scale.
1: So, how do you see yeah. the market moving towards making really specific ads mm-hmm. for really specific demographics
3: rather um, than just one overall campaign? Right. I think. I mean, it has been definitely. <clears throat> I think it's like. Pendulums. You know, my wife works in education, she always talks about. Whoever's in government, like the pendulum will swing. So with um, Labour, it was all about you know, kind of creativity and giving freedom to teachers to you know develop parts of the curriculum, or whatever. And then the Tories got in, and it kind of swings back. It's about testing and whatever. And it's the same with um, with advertising. And I think that the pendulum swung and has swung very recently towards programmatic and data driven advertising um, because it's accountable and it's scalable and it's replicable and you can change it and really figure out it's very responsive. but I think what um, people have or you know, brands have started to lose in that is that it's efficient but ultimately over time it's proven to not necessarily be as effective as people have anticipated because what happens is you'll get very very targeted messages but you're losing those cultural moments. You know, so where there are ads that land, like say Guinness Surfer a few years ago, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, these ads, these ads that become even like John Lewis Christmas ads, or whatever. They become part yeah. of the cultural conversation. Yeah. They become things people talk about, catchphrases. You know, that people will like taglines or jokes yeah. or whatever. You know, like Marmite or Meerkats or whatever. Those sort of things. So you you lose that, but also what we found looking at this, and we've done a lot of work with with clients around this because um, a lot of them are really bet the farm on on, on programmatic, and it's like <clears throat> a lot of the communication. Is done in such a way, so algorithmic, it'd be right. If the temperature is this and the city is this, and this person is the one that likes football and is 28 years old and whatever, we're gonna hit him with this ad. And it's almost like so computerized that it's all kind of, you know, so hyper-targeted that it starts to just feel a little bit kind of mechanical. And also a lot of these ads have got some sort of um, transactional offer. You know, yeah. uh, and which means over yeah. time you start to associate that sort of targeting with discounts, coupons, you know, th- two for th- two for ones or whatever it is. So therefore, you kind of almost don't want to pay full price for that that brand because yeah. you're getting used to, you know. Well, that's so, the thing um, I feel
1: like now. I don't pay full price for anything really right because <laughs> i'll i know it's going to be on sale at some point yeah so for example like one of our employees is looking for a new laptop and i'm quite techie so she asked mm. me some advice as well black friday is coming up soon so yeah. you'll definitely get it cheaper then and i just kind of think well well what do i need so i'll have an idea in the back of my head of what i'm looking for mm. and i'll just wait until just it wait. comes on offer
3: i think that's partly the part of the downfall of Pizza Express you know because yeah. did so many things where it was all wrapped up in apps and loyalty programs for people and you'd see oh, yeah. I,
1: would never, I, I could not the last take time paid a full
3: price at Pizza yeah eggs, never you know? and <laughs> it's a great brand it's a really good you know when I was sort of growing started advertising in you know in Soho it was like a, an institution and jazz yeah. nights and whatever it was a, like an amazing brand and yeah, kind of restaurant yeah. experience for you know cheap kind of experience but yeah they screwed it by becoming transactional so I think what's happened is you've got Adidas and Booking.com the two big brands that recently come out and said, we've actually messed up. You know, we've gone so far towards data and this efficiency and programmatic, but we're actually finding that it's not having the the effect long-term that we wanted to. So um, when I talked before about the effectiveness of um, awards and ads, yeah, um, <clears throat> it used to be, so when we did it at Leo Burnett, or the IPA, which is the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, which is the trade body for UK advertising agencies and they're brilliant like their methodology is really robust they've always done these studies tracking as i say award-winning ads effectiveness in the market and it used to be something like the award-winning ads were like 11 times more effective than none and it kind of sunk down to six and then at can lions which is like the oscars of advertising um for the global industry in june they dropped this brilliant bombshell of oh we've done a new one and it's um, gone down to zero like sorry but you know you guys are so obsessed with short-termism yeah. and short-term activation and these personalized messages and whatever that you've lost sight of brand building and they're their perspective the guys behind that they're saying um this is someone called peter peter field and les too who are the authors of this survey um research and they're saying that um you should invest 60 percent of your marketing budget in long-term brand building and like these big you know kind of emotional or funny like ads that everyone sees everyone recognizes and then 40 percent in the more tactical short-term digital experimental and then i think some australian researchers have looked at this and said actually it's swung so far to non-effective that it should be more like 70 30 or 75 25 you need to come so i think the pendulum to your question is starting to swing back and i think you'll get brands investing more in the long-term brand building the commercials films videos on youtube you know kind of experiences and that kind of stuff.
1: So a lot of the brands we have been talking about are like very big brands. A lot of our audience are Mm. kind of like just getting started with their businesses or a lot smaller. What would Mm. you say to them would be the best approach for advertising?
3: Mm -hmm. I think the principles that kind of operate for big brands apply to everyone. Obviously budget is a a thing, but, you know, the actual kind of principles, I think... um, for some smaller brands or people just kind of starting off, you're actually in a quite privileged position to a certain extent because you've got that challenger mentality. Um, so I know this isn't a small brand, but you know some of the best advertising on the planet comes from Burger King mm-hmm. at the moment. They're with like most heavily awarded ad uh, marketer of last year. A lot of it happens in the States um, be- precisely because they're the number number two behind yeah. mcdonald's and their whole mission is we can just poke a stick at the clown and literally poke a stick at the clown and um, they've done all sorts of weird things where um, they did this app last year well the brief was we need to get more people to download the burger king app because food is going to be digital everyone's going to get their food more from online orders yeah. than walking into a restaurant um so their agency ended up doing this thing where they this is something completely off-tangent, but something that if you're a small company, you probably wouldn't do because they geoclaced <laughs> 14,000 McDonald's restaurants. And the idea was that if you arrived in one of these restaurants and fired up, downloaded the Burger King app, it would recognise that you were in a McDonald's and that would activate a voucher where you could go to the nearest Burger King and buy a burger for a cent. And it would direct you via maps to get there kind of thing, which is brilliant. And it was just literally cocking a snooker. Yeah. McDonald's, they've done stuff around... Um, <laughs> taking pictures of kids screaming with clowns, so, <laughs> you know, and using noses yeah. whatever. But even on a positive note, they've got where there's one day um, where McDonald's, where all the proceeds of the, the sale of a Big Mac will go towards the Ronald McDonald Foundation, and Burger King don't sell the Whopper on that day. They literally direct people to a McDonald's. So again, sometimes you can be positive but we're just i think the idea what i'm trying to get at from a small smaller brand perspective is a judo flips so like how can you kind of use the weight and the lumbering kind of you know predictability of your competitors and do something unexpected or almost kind of like subvert what they're doing compare yourself to them take the piss out of them be provocative and use that as a judo flip or um i think we talk it was one of the sort of contagious commandments is to ask heretical questions so you look at exactly what's going on in a category And there's a small, and there's a guy called um, Hal Gregerson, who's a really interesting um, kind of um, of management consultant, business thinker who works at MIT. Mm -hmm. And he's got this um, process he calls question storming, which I think is really interesting. He kind of says brainstorms are for wimps. You know, brainstorms always kind of surface ideas that are relatively close to the surface anyway, and they're very passive and a bit kind of forced. So he's got this thing called question storming, which is to ask um, 50 questions of a problem or solution. And this works for companies of any size. You could be a one-man band, one-woman band, or you know, a company of 20, 50 people. And it's basically, think of the, the problem or what you're trying to get at, and ask 50 questions and don't answer the questions. Because if you start to answer them, you start to shut down or you get distracted or you don't. And he said it's really, really hard to get beyond 30, generally, but it's between like the 30 to the 50, particularly once you get past 40, his his theory is that you get to the really interesting solutions in those last little bits. And we've done it. We've tested it on, on clients in workshops. And you can tell those that are very conservative and always talk about, you know, kind of KPIs and P&Ls and profit and whatever. It's like, okay, you give them an open-ended one. So we did one for um, a company in the, in the US that was exactly, you know, we just knew they were so conservative. And that's partly why we were invited yeah. to go be in the room to help shake them up a bit. <laughs> and the, the, we got them into it by going, right imagine you are mayor of new york for the day what are the 50 questions you would ask and that's kind of doesn't there's no fear in that it's not connected to my job but it just gave them it kind of liberated them and they really kind of enjoyed it but it was hard even in that context um but they still they found they got to some really interesting spaces um in 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 the last kind of you know kind of five to ten questions it's it's forcing them to be creative
1: yes they're in positions that it's kind of creative has been forced out and they're just down these like really mm. hollow lines of KPI, KPI, KPI. Yeah. They're not really thinking like outside the box horrible quote. But
3: like, Yeah. I know. We also show in workshops, um, Chris, who I wrote the book with, um, found this really um, great gif um, from a sort of medical, biological experiment in American University. And it has this fish and it's in a tank. And it's great because it's got two black lines, which is the edges of the tank. And this fish is kind of swimming against this current. And it's great. You kind of look down on it and go, "Okay, awesome fish. It's kind of like swimming, it's a little tiny fish swimming against the current. It's like this is so many companies now. You know, so this is your company, and everyone thinks, oh, it's great, we're fighting against current, we're doing well. And it's like you click on the next slide, and it's got this kind of scientific blurb at the bottom, and the fish is dead, <laughs> and has been all along. And it's this experiment to talk about the fluid dynamics of the biology of the fish, and it's got this kind of muscle memory that basically once it's died, its body is so kind of perfectly tuned into swimming that it just keeps it's on so swimming. Amazing. And we're like, this is Thomas Cook, this is Blockbuster, mm. this is Sun Microsystems, this is whatever. So many people get trapped in this keep like, just, like literally swim in our lane do what we always do keep on swimming keep on swimming wait for other people to take the risks or to you know kind of change but we'll just keep on doing what we're doing and i think smaller companies have got that kind of capacity to think a little bit differently be a little bit braver do something that no one else is doing but it's hard and it's tough but you can kind of stand but out i think sometimes? it is
1: about those companies that make them become a dead mm-hmm. fish
3: I think it's um, sometimes it's arrogance and hubris, you know, it's because they've got massive market cap or market dominance or um, so it's a combination of that. Um, But also it's that it's an internal culture um, where they, they become so kind of risk averse. So It's a combination of like the arrogance that we're doing well, we're really good at this. We'll just stick to this. But also they don't necessarily have that corporate culture where they like. Maverick thinking or heretical questions or anyone that sort of like, you know, sucks the air out of the room by being a little bit difficult and <laughs> awkward. Um, and again, you know, um, Cornell um, University, another um, study that we can refer to in the book, um, which is brilliant. And I think anyone can kind of Google it on. Um, it's called The Bias Against Creativity. And um, they did this study where it was hundreds and hundreds of people, like business people, including marketers and stuff, and they tried to get them... It was trying to test or prove the theory that humans are hardwired to hate uncertainty so they're sort of saying that's why you know our ancestors ran away from hot lava and angry mammoths we've still got that kind of mechanism in our brain that as soon as we see danger or risk we kind of flee or shut it down and it was basically this like implicit word association test and they were put into this position where they had to commit to a decision they had one opportunity to get this thing right and then at the last they were basically presented with a solution that was a little bit risky like a little bit different Um, or creative Um, I think we define creative as like divergent but relevant so something that's kind of rooted in like what that brand stands for what the idea is about but it just feels a little bit divergent different Mm. quirky provocative whatever so they were suddenly presented with this unusual unfamiliar slightly risky proposition and they had to um, like instinctively almost subconsciously hit these buttons as to how they were feeling, these words came up. And um, it's sort of funny when you do this as, like as, a, as a talk, because the words that were associated with creative ideas, like risky ideas, were um things like poison vomit and agony (laughs) (laughs) which is and it's like so what they were saying accordingly the the researchers behind this study were saying that um it is so subliminal and like primeval or subconscious that you find reasons to shut creativity down or risk down without even thinking about it it's almost like short your brain short circuits and you just have this instant kind of subliminal kind of antipathy or wariness or whatever that yeah. you parked it and then you don't even realize you've done it and you just and that's what happens in big corporations as I say where they don't want to have those feelings <laughs> they don't want to they don't create a culture <laughs> where those feelings are encouraged or fine it's like yeah so uh, we'll just keep on swimming keep on swimming and suddenly you know you get attacked so I think Facebook when they um hit their 10th anniversary <coughs> had this quite an interesting sort of like st- stuff manual um, and one of the pages was, if, if we don't create the next Facebook killer, someone else will, yeah. you know, and you, know, you can have your own perspectives of uh, Facebook and, you know, whether it's socially acceptable to work there anymore. But some, um, you know, I think that was a really interesting, provocative point. And it's like, we have to look at who's going to kill us, because if, if we don't they will when their philosophy was just to buy all the people (laughs) 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 but I think as you know the other way of looking at it is um the best way to burglar proof your house is to throw away the keys of your apartment you know so that's an exercise that we use when we do workshops with brands but it's like if you literally lose your keys and try and get into your flat then you see it in a whole kind of yeah, different light. Yeah. It's like the weaknesses or if you can't get in, great. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you've done everything right. But chances are there's going to be a You'll little loose window a or yeah. a dodgy door or whatever it is. But it's the same for your your company, no matter how big you are. As I say, you can be a freelancer. It's like, well how do I look compared to others what's my edge what's my difference what am I doing that no one else or what could I do that no one else is is kind of doing and just yeah think along along those lines. uh,
0: questions are so important and it's one of one of the things you said in the book is that questions are trained out of us at an early age we're we're taught Um, not to answer ask questions yeah
3: exactly which is why the heretical questions I think works really well because then you get down right down to basics or to the point where yeah all the all the barriers are down and yeah, and I think Einstein, this sort of famous quote from him, to say, you know, if I had an hour left to live, or an hour before a disaster was going to happen, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking of the right questions to ask, and then five minutes executing on them. You know, so, that's brilliant. Yeah.
0: Um, one thing you talk about as well is um, asking dumb questions. Mm-hmm.
3: Dumb questions. Yeah. So <laughs> the
0: importance of why? Why should we ask yeah. dumb
3: questions? Because, again, that's something that's bashed out of us, you know, and people are scared of looking stupid, scared of losing their jobs or scared of doing something that feels mm. different. And I think the dumb questions are the ones that sometimes have got that kind of childlike naivety that will take you to an unexpected unexpected place, you know. So um, one of the ones that I think in the book that we refer to was um, from an airline called Transavia, or Transavia, which is like an easy jet kind of airline in France and Belgium, and they were saying, like, every time... Um, we try and do some sort of ad campaign and people are sort of about to buy a flight with us, particularly online. Suddenly, because of SEO and so on, there's all our competitors are like, come fly with us, we're cheaper. And that's what um, is known as like the red ocean. Like You've got all these people competing and eating each other and it's like blood in the water type thing. And they've got, how the hell do we get away from, from this and get into, like this is business speak, like blue ocean, which is that marketing kind of theory that if you can take your brand or your idea into blue ocean, that's where none of your competitors are. It's a nice, clean peaceful space mm-hmm. where you can be and communicate and whatever how do you get to blue ocean and this idea that the agency had in france it was like Le, Le Goules, which was like quite a rebel kind of young feisty little agency and they're going right we've had this idea and basically they said right we're going to um create a series of products so like crisps gummy bears soda and we're going to brand it Transavia and we're going to work with Carrefour who's like France's biggest supermarket chain so again that's one thing that sort of runs through the book is that collaboration I think is really powerful so again if you're a small business or independent it's like can you collaborate with someone that's in an adjacent industry and it's like one plus one equals three you Mm -hmm. know where they're going to get something out of it you're going to get something out of it but you get to a better place because of that so they did this thing where they created these products, um, all nicely branded. The agent said it nearly killed them because they had to do like procurement and logistics and insurance and packaging and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But they and they asked for Carrefour to create these kind of special, you know, kind of areas for them that were away from normal slacks. And they said, ideally, we want them in the alcohol near champagne and expensive wine. Mm-hmm. And then the way it worked was that um, you know it's each packet would have a different city and they did it in such a way so where they knew where the supermarket was and where the nearest airport was and where they flew so something like this gummy bears might be called barcelona and then if you bought that packet of gummy bears it would cost you like 35 euros which is expensive for a bag of sweets but once you bought it it had a special code inside the packaging and that would literally get you to a beach in barcelona as a ticket so basically why can't an airline ticket be a packet of crisps And that's a sort of dumb question. Well, of course it can't, you know, (laughs) it has to be on an app or it has to be on a piece of paper or it's got to be, you know, printed off or whatever. But that is a perfect example of a dumb question. And they got to the point where they did it and they had this sort of set, you know, like uh, amount that they could allocate to this offer. And they'd given it, say, like a month. And after two weeks, all all the tickets had gone. You know, so and they felt that was that period where the dumb question that got them into the blue ocean, as they call it, and uh, none of their competitors could get anywhere close. Yeah, you know, and it was a nice bit of like anchoring bias, as we call it, because it was yeah. suddenly it was like it feels expensive, but compared to like a bottle of champagne, actually flying to Barcelona is yeah. great. You yeah, know, so let's do it. Yeah, so
0: um, what, I was at a university talk recently, and one of the one of the questions was. I, I'm just starting off. Like, how? Mm. Like, how, how do I get attention? And I've got mm-hmm. no budget to advertise. Right. And I told a story of something that we did, um, and it's, it's something I hadn't thought of for a long time. But um, when we did the box park thing, yeah. So, um, right. so across the road from us now is Box Park, which has become quite a big brand. Mm. Um, but when we were first, like we we're probably in our first, like maybe year or second year of business, mm-hmm. um, we started seeing flyers for this thing called Box Park that was mm-hmm. going to be, and it turned out to be a retail park that's built of old, uh, what are well, they shipping containers? Yeah. Um they've done really well, and there's there's several. Uh, I mean, they're just printing money now because they oh, yeah. they're charging big rent now. for yeah. for people to come, and I don't think they pay any rent on the space mm-hmm. because they get it from the council because oh, it's right. our new space. Yeah. So okay. they, it's just a license for money. <laughs> there's a big one in
3: Croydon because they use that in the, all the uh, World Cup, all that England fans going yes. kind of crazy. Yeah. And stuff as well. yeah,
0: huge one in Croydon. I think there's one in Wimbledon. But like, Wimbledon a, a great Wimbledon business. Well. Yeah, a great business that's doing really well. But um, the first one was in Shoreditch. We were just setting up, started seeing these flyers for this thing called Box Park that was coming to Shoreditch. So we got in touch with them and said, let's collaborate. Mm-hmm no money exchanged on either side um, but let's just do something for data capture to try and sort of build mm-hmm. a mailing list so we decided to do box art at Box Park mm-hmm. we got 100 boxes donated from I think it was a record a record shipping yeah. um, place right. that we knew someone who worked there who was like yeah I'll give mm-hmm. you all these boxes right. for free we got 100 free cardboard boxes we then spent I mean far too long <laughs> yeah i
1: think 100 doesn't sound like much but then when you're doing a custom piece of art on every single every one, side as well
0: and no just, just on one, one side, side we side hand canvas. painted all every single one of them right
1: but, um 100's a lot bigger number than you, <laughs> yeah. yeah we <laughs> thought oh
0: yeah we'll do that in a week and right. like yeah right up until the deadline the night before we're oh, painting no, these boxes maybe. but then um then on the d- i think we had over a thousand people sign up mm-hmm. to come and get one of the 100 boxes um, huge data capture for them we shared the email addresses mm. and they gave us a space to host it we put up all of the all of the boxes people came on the day and collected it they got a chance to experience Box Park for the first time mm-hmm. they got a free piece of artwork yeah. and it just it it was collaboration but it just yeah, worked absolutely. so well
3: yeah I think that's again it sort of taps into one of the contagious commandments which is um, well a few of them but like one of them is like be generous mm. and again it's like yeah. don't ask what's in it for us ask what's in it for them but I mean, if you've got generosity kind of baked in then that that works but also cleverly you've latched on to another one which is um to weaponize your audience so you're giving something of value to someone um but that thing is going to be individual or bespoke and quite cool what they're going to do with it they're going to take photographs and pass it on and share it and so on so Mm. already you created a kind of nice little splash where you threw a stone into a pond and the ripples will will kind of go from there you know so that's smart you know but again it's authentic because it's what you do you know, you're not kind of getting someone else to come and paint these things yeah. or whatever. It's like it, it's your exactly what you stand for and it shows how good, you know, you are in terms of your artwork and so on. So it's got authenticity and permission. Um, but, yeah, I think also people love that sense of um, the gamification or sense of a challenge. Like I want if there's a thousand people, there's a hundred. Like I want to be yeah. one of the lucky ones. Yeah. I want to get there first. Or you give people a challenge. And as long as the, the reward outweighs the effort, then, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I I look back on those early days and I think, if we hadn't been brave, because you talk about bravery yeah. in the book, I think if we hadn't been brave and just reached out to hundreds of different places, anywhere that we thought right. there was a chance for us to just get attention, yeah, then I don't think we'd probably be where we are no, exactly. Yeah. And I think
3: experimentation is really important as well. I think another one of the commandments is what we call it, like you know, join the five percent club. And I think when we wrote that one, it was like two thousand and five. So I think we were one of the first people within the ad industry to say, like, okay, Madison Avenue, which is the term often applied to the ad industry you know you need to behave more like silicon valley you know, you've got to experiment more, you've got to take more risks, you've got to collaborate. And so we were sort of saying 5% as a nominal number, it could be anything, but it was like literally just take 5% of your, or it could be, as I say, 10, 3, whatever, but 5% seemed a good one. So it was like, take 5% of your media budget, your production budget, your Christmas party budget, whatever, but just do stuff you wouldn't normally do. And one of the things we kept advising was like, work with startups, work with university labs, like do, you know, all these amazing people that have got these fantastic ideas and they want exposure, they want scale, they want visibility and fame and they're not mm-hmm. going to get it unless someone with deep pockets can come in and go, hey, can we help? You know, and as long as it's done in a sensitive, authentic, you know, way with, with integrity and so on, then both parties kind of, you know, kind of can can benefit from that. So we had someone a few years ago um, that we featured in our magazine um, from Chile. There's a really interesting weird little company called Notco. And it was these guys, one one was from advertising, one was like a chemical engineer or whatever. It was about four of them and um and all really smart. They'd all done, like, MBAs in American universities or whatever. But they basically um, had this idea where they knew where things were going in terms of meat production and, and environmentalism and all that kind of stuff. And they wanted to start creating alternative food forms that were... Yeah. yeah. So because of their... You know, some of these guys being been real scientists. They, they've basically figured out how to create things like mayonnaise without any eggs or, like, meat without meat um, through a combination of machine learning and chemistry essentially so they could go right meat has got the consistency of this the color of this the if you actually boil it down to its molecular compounds or whatever it's this so therefore what can we use in nature to replicate it and then like because of machine learning they could test and, test and test and test and test and test and suddenly start creating these you know that's what's called not notco because it's not milk but yeah, it tastes yeah. like milk it's not mayonnaise and we tried it and to say their mayonnaise tasted more like salad cream but that's a, <laughs> maybe that's a cultural thing but you know this because so we brought this little guy over to speak at our event because we had this thing about like most contagious startups of the year and a little sort of competition and they ended up winning it and like he'd never sort of talked about the business outside of Chile. we had to sort of pay for his flight he kind of shuffled on stage in his hoodie looking or whatever they've just been bought by jeff bezos <laughs> literally yeah. you know because when we were there we gave him like a little stand to sort of meet everyone afterwards in the exhibition area and people like from coke and unilever were kind of all over him and it was like whoa you mm-hmm. want something here mate and as i say yeah this was about four or five years ago and now jeff bezos is, is, is invested so and that was one of those kind of you know four people literally in, in a bedroom who started yeah. it when they all had other jobs yeah. and they just thought there's something in this and if we can just test it around one product but they use the university labs and whatever and we say that there's huge potential there sometimes to, to kind of collaborate and people are always looking for ideas that, that cut through is on, it, the, sorry, yeah.
1: on the 5% there, do you still stick by the 5% or would you go more like towards a 2 or to a 10%?
3: Um, I mean, to be honest, the 5 was just the nominal kind of sum. So it depends on the context and it depends on the company. If you've got big funds, then you can go 15 if you want. Yeah. But if you're a tiny little titchy person, then maybe just 1% or whatever. But it's just it's more just the principle. It's yeah. just do something, you know. Um, so some of the examples, I don't know, we talk about... You know, I mean, they're obviously, you know, they're, they're brand examples. But one of my favourites was from... Um, Spain was an agency they were working for Ford. Mm -hmm. And the brief again, like boring standard, you know seen it a million times before it was like we need to get young parents to come and test drive the ford s max our family car get more people to come and do test yeah. drives. so in the past that would have been radio print tv ads usual but someone at the agency and this is what i love it's about that human kind of insight and connection and like if you we often talk about the best advertising ideas being ones that solve pain points I and mean, that's the future of advertising is how can you understand someone so well like figure out where the friction points are and like solve them somehow mm-hmm. then you'll get their reward and whatever so so this person's obviously got experience and they're a young parent themselves and they're like, babies, you create these beautiful kind of safe spaces for them to sleep in with, like, you know, soft music, comfortable cots, you paint the walls, whatever, and you sing to them, whatever. Do the little fuckers go to sleep? No. <laughs> right, so they're screaming for half an hour, won't go to sleep. If you've run out of milk and you need to go down the garage and you stick it in the back of the car, they're asleep within five minutes, and it's because of that sense of motion and lights and whatever. So, this the agency had this idea of right. Okay, if we could create like a Ford, and again they did it. And it was a beautiful designed crib, and it had kind of very subtle sort of Ford branding. It was all very natural wood and white and whatever. And the idea was that it would mimic the sensation of being in a car and it had some lights that went around the top of the crib that would mimic street lights yeah. and then the killer kind of app behind it was that they you could literally download your own soundtrack into it so songs that the baby was used to or your yeah, voice yeah. and that's the experience but the only way you could get it was by booking a test drive and then you could buy it for you know a kind of reasonable amount Very and it went so well that that's now a piece of ip that's going to go global you know because of that kind of one idea, and that was a five percent thing, where it's like, well, I don't want percentage, but a five percent in principle, and it's like we can test it, and if it fails, we've lost a little bit of money yeah, that we yeah. spent working with this lab and these kind of boffins to try and make it happen and designers, but in the grand scheme of things, I did to say it was 50 grand for them. That's not very much money. Um, but if it works, whoosh, like VC style, you, yeah. you scale it up and.
1: Cause we're, I feel like our business is almost like we are the five percent that people <laughs> need to use. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> like, like we did um, the big out of home project, mm. probably like three years ago now. It was a big hand painted mural for Microsoft, yeah. and um, it was they would have doing a billboard campaign. And they decided to do a hand painted one as well as part yeah. of this overall thing. And a passerby took a photo, put on Reddit, and it got two point five million views yeah. in two days. Right. And that wouldn't have happened if it was just if they'd have just gone that safe Absolutely. route of everything that yeah, they'd yeah, done totally. before.
3: Because again, I think people love authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm presuming it was a beautiful, yeah, provocative, was, yeah. interesting. Yeah, Handcrafting. I think and that's handcrafted, the That's yeah. why I think people like that sort it's, of provenance and yeah. authenticity. It's the and amazement labor.
1: Yeah, the quality of the, the labor craft. and like how how have they done that? That's yeah. amazing. They've done that with some mm-hmm. small spray cans. Like, yeah. But I mean, we
0: certainly were there, their their five percent. We were just mm-hmm. their little like. Oh, let's yeah. see what happens. Yeah, because That's we right. the right thing to do because they were because yeah. they were doing digital. They were mm-hmm. doing. I mean, just bombarding everything, mm-hmm. uh, digital print, and and we were just a small part of the campaign. But um, we know that we were such a small part because we said, "Would you like us to do a video of it?" Right. And they said, "No."
3: Ouch. Right. So you did it yourselves, hopefully, on the
0: iPhone. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. we did. We paid a full team to come and shoot it professionally because we knew it was such a good potential opportunity for us to use for our own portfolio going forward. They were like, even though they haven't paid for it, we're going to make the most of this opportunity, even if mm-hmm. we don't make such a profit on that job. Right. At least we've got this to then go forward to the next client and say, yeah. like, look,
0: this is what we did for these people. Yeah, exactly. Which then lesson. they came back and said, "Well, can we have the video?" Because they'd realised that <laughs> yeah. their mistake. You it said so. it'll be fifty thousand pounds, please. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, but again, I think um, we we talk about. Um, you talked before about experiences and people wanting those things lodged in their heads. The, the power is um, to treasure and transmit. So someone would treasure that experience of looking at this thing that's beautifully crafted and think, oh, I wish I could do that. Or yeah. the hours, they did that with spray paint, oh my God. Yeah. So there's that kind of cultural moment you know, where for that person in that, in that moment, it's unique for them and they know that none of their friends are going to be part of that. So it's that treasuring it but transmitting it. Yeah, so it's if you a, can treasure and transmit, the transmission is a social. The photos, the Instagram, yeah, and it's and uh,
1: everyone's kind of chasing status. And for them to have this mm. experience that they know their friends haven't had, exactly, then that gives them that little boost They're of status. Yeah. yeah, it's like I can post this online, and I mm. now look better than these other people, which is what well, just a that social my life media is more interesting. Is. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's the, the yeah, way the world yeah, is. Yeah, I know. Where I know. people just want to look more interesting than everyone else, and if you can mm. go and do these experiences. Even if it's paid for by a brand, people don't care because they want to just say that yeah. they've been able to go there and do this cool thing that mm-hmm. someone else hasn't had the possibility to actually go and do. Yeah,
3: but I think also in your case, that was backed up by the fact that it was a beautiful piece of art or an interesting piece of art. And I think uh, people want, you know, there's so much is now is robotic, mechanised, yeah. you know, kind of cookie cutter. And that's where and, we butt
0: up against, we butt heads with agencies quite often is that an agency will employ us and we'll be sort of the end of the chain Mm. and we'll say, well, this artwork is not brave, this artwork we can do better. Mm. And that won't then get fed back to the end client because there's the scarcity within the agency side they're scared to go to the end client to say. So that's something that sort of frustrates us sometimes. I
1: think our most successful campaigns is like we did a big thing for an alcohol brand where they gave us some artwork that they were using on posters and Mm. we were just like, this is dull. we just said it's, it's really boring it's not going to like pop off the wall at all yeah. it's just going to like blend into the background so i got the bottle went and shot the photograph myself in a mm. really cool like well-lit environment mm. we painted that and it was one of the best murals i've ever painted because yeah. it was like we know what works mm-hmm. and we just made so that trust into, us yeah, yeah exactly i think
3: um richard seymour who's like a really famous designer um he told this story once when i was at leo Burnett. we did this um sort of creative kind of masterclass with dean where he brought loads of creative directors in from all over the world spent three days in edinburgh and it was brilliant and we had all these practitioners came in and did talks and exercises and whatever but i remember richard seymour just did a talk to all these creatives and they were literally like little kids sitting around at story time just watching this amazing guy talk and he told this story and this was back in whenever it was the 90s so again mobile phones were relatively nascent and he talked about a story when i can't remember the brand but his client was a mobile phone company and he knew that he had this design for like a shell type phone like a different sort of design and he knew that his client wouldn't buy it because the fish thing you know go, yeah. Yeah. because they were just in their ways they knew exactly what they wanted had factories that you know design prototype all the rest of it he just knew so conservative he wouldn't go for it so he did this classic thing of he had a meeting with him about something else and he put he designed this phone and he had the prototype in his pocket and he had his real mobile phone in the same pocket. And he told his secretary to, to phone him at a precise moment. He, and he said, like, phone me where three times, it rings three times, enough for me to get out my pocket and answer it and then put it down. I don't want a conversation with you. So he basically took out the prototype so he knew that his real phone would yeah, stop yeah. and timed it. it. was like, hello? Hi, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm in a meeting. I'm re- can, I, can I call you back? And he put it back on the table. And, of course, he'd put the rival logo on top of it. So his client was like, what's that? He went, oh, have you not seen it? It's a new phone from... Big rival, and this guy literally picks it up in his hand, and he's turning it over, and he gets that very kind of immediate visceral sense of, "Holy fuck, this is good!" Yeah. And he's like, "Oh my god, oh my!" And he could literally was scared, and you know, and Richard's sort of sitting by watching this all time. <laughs> and then beautifully, he was like, ah, "Actually," and he basically just peeled off the logo, and his client's logo was sitting underneath. Amazing. And he was going, it's "Yours if you want it," you know, Wonderful. and that's brilliant because you appeal to the human side of things. In the same way that one of my favourite stories from um, like from advertising in terms of getting ideas through was Dove, you know, the Real Beauty campaign, yeah. the ranking shot. They knew that was rejected, like, time and time again by, you know, the people at Unilever, most of whom were were men, essentially. Yeah. So the agency uh, was so determined to get it over the line, they went and interviewed the daughters of some of the decision makers at Unilever about body image, stereotypes, what it's like to be a woman and so on. And they were really like quite raw, honest interviews. And they went and, and they could have lost the account. This is where it's brave, interesting, yeah. kind of provocative. They could have got into a real kind of shitstorm with the client. But they, they made them or put this video on in a, in a, in a meeting. And it was so powerful because these guys were watching their daughters say things that they didn't know they felt. Yeah. They'd never asked them. They, didn't, and they saw them very vulnerable. So suddenly as human beings rather than business people, they're watching something, getting like an emotional reaction and signed it off. In the same way with Richard and this design, it's like if you go for the emotional jugular and get someone to look at stuff as a human from a creative point of view rather than a business person that wants to shut down risk and that poison, vomit, agony thing, you know, that will suddenly remove because it's you as a human.
1: Oh, do you live by any commandments? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um.
3: <laughs> it was funny, actually, because um, I gave my wife a hard time. She works in education, so she works with loads of... I, she's a dyslexic specialist, so she's got proper job. We all sort of laugh Is that. I've sold my soul to the advertising devil, and she restores the karma by doing good stuff. <laughs> you know, but she's also, you know, like moments about lack of funding and the the pendulum swing yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) exactly but i took the piss out of her because she hadn't read the book you know she kind of looked at the bit in the back where she's referenced and kind of flicked through the first chapter but you know not really interested in the marketing world and i gave her a hard time about it like taking you know gentle piss taking so she secretly read it um well the half of it and she would sort of start just sneaking in phrases like at Dinners or yeah. whatever, and she'd be going. Um, it's funny you should say that, but yeah, I, I see the value of heretical questions in this context. Or you know, problem with you, Paul, is you, you know you haven't got a strong organising principle, and you really need to have a you know a stronger organising principle because you anyway. So um, <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> I think fundamentally, I suppose it has to be like chapter 10, which is like be brave. Because that's to us is like where the rest of the, the commandments take you to. And what we're trying to do is create a framework to say like, it's easy to say be brave if you're not involved and you're yeah. a bystander or an objective kind of you know kind of consultant on the outside like we are. Um, so therefore, these nine steps will kind of get you there and there'll be provocations and principles, but there's there's proof in it. But I suppose for me, it's that kind of the whole bravery thing is because you have to cut through and you have to be different and I just sort of really believe in in the, the power, like the transformational power of creativity and mm. the best creativity is one that, kind of as I said earlier, kind of, it sort of feels a little bit familiar but it's different. It's, it's just cranked to a, a slightly higher degree or the temperature's turned up or it's just that little bit of divergency um, and to me, it's like, yeah, the, the best ideas are the ones that are going to transform businesses change the world you know create movements or just get people to stop in their tracks and participate or enjoy and life's complicated it's a little bit crap at the Mm. moment with Brexit and all the rest of it and I think like little pockets of joy and innovation kind of really stand out and where do they come from by being brave and doing something different and being prepared to yeah kind of just take a risk.
0: One thing you say in the book is um, no one cares about your idea.
3: Yeah, yeah. well, we try to be brutal in that sense is that no one will care about your idea unless it's good, unless it's great, unless it means something, unless it connects with them. And that's why we try and say to brands, it's like, you know, if you build it, you know, that sort of field of dreams, Kevin Costner thing, guess what? They're not going to (laughs) come because they've got so much choice, so many other things to do, so little time. And it's like you're not competing against other brands, you're competing against Pixar or YouTube or you know, going down the pub or whatever. And it's it's you've got to realise that you sort of fit in as a brand in this very sort of complex cultural landscape and you've got to give something that's got value and, and you know, kind of a reason for someone to spend time. And that's what we say, is if people are going to spend time interacting with your idea, your idea, can you give them back the equivalent of compound interest? And that could either be an amazing emotional reaction or it could be like a service or a tool or some sort of invitation that kind of rewards them disproportionately. So what are your
0: um, opinions on going viral or or like trying to engineer something so that it goes viral?
3: Um, The kind of professional part of me hates it and <laughs> that's why um, I, I can't watch The Apprentice on that episode was hey make this viral for a brand it's like, <laughs> that's an oxymoron you can't uh, in fact we've got <laughs> for um, when we launched the cage's C- C- Commandments and did a sort of you know our launch party we did a talk about each one and we found or Chris found this really funny um, clip of this <laughs> woman in America who's got like the 50 steps to going viral and it's like step one You can't. Step two, guess what? You can't. Step three, you can't. And it's really funny, beautifully cut and all that sort of stuff. But anyway, and I think it's that point that you can't force kind of, you know, you can't make something go viral. It's up to the audience. You know, Mm. it's quite patronizing to think that you can. So that sort of professional part of me thinks, you know, creativity has to win. But then you look at it from the marketing science angle and there are marketing scientists that have said, Yes, you can actually, but you've got to do it by creating, you have to give people tools so you make it easy for them. So we we talk about it as um, aligning with behavior. So if you align with behavior, that means like, look at what people are doing, how they're behaving, the apps they're using, how they're creating stuff. And rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, like co-opt that and then do what's like another commandment, which is to, to let them weaponize your idea. So use your audience to weaponize. And I think one of the best examples we've got of something kind of going viral in that sort of very kind of ground ground up way was from Adidas a few years ago where they created this um, football boot called The Glitch which is where you could get these skins that went on top of the main boot and you could design them and they're all quite funky and change them really easily and all that kind of stuff. And rather than doing what they would have done in the past, which would be this big mass media and expensive advertising campaign, they worked with a really small group of influencers that they call the Tango Squad. And those were, right, rather than paying an expensive Premier League footballer lots of money, they figured out that one of these like kids that plays in the academy of a Premier League team has actually got quite a strong kind of social media presence. And if you get 16 of them, that's the same as one professional type thing and yeah. you know, a lot cheaper so they'd go like with the usual like artists and DJs and so on but things like these professional like academy plays and so on and they'd say to them right you're part of the squad as being part of the squad you design the boots, you design how we market them, how we go to market, but also in reward we're going to give you experiences. So suddenly they were taken off to train with Real Madrid or whatever, like again, unique things that they couldn't get anywhere else. Um, but when it came to actually selling the boots, the only way people could buy them was getting a code that was released by one of the Tango Squad. Uh, okay. So really smart kind of going, right, if you want them, now here's a code yeah. and then once they'd bought it, they were given a code. Which is quite brave from Adia's point of view because it's like, well, you know, we can either do this mass market campaign and get thousands and thousands of people in mm. or we start with a very small group and, and grow up but they talked about um advertising now being about having an eye-to-eye relationship with people and i love that phrase because it's like if you if you two sort of stare at each other now for a minute even though you know each other and love each other it's weird it's <laughs> it is, quite yeah, intense because yeah. you're suddenly getting to someone's soul and it's like think about that from a brand point of view is if, if you if someone's going to interact with you do the eye test it's like you've got nothing to hide you're completely honest you're vulnerable and yeah I think that was a really interesting way of of looking at uh, how do you make something go viral it's Mm. like well you make the people who you want it to go viral to they they become the creators and then it's got baked in you know kind of authenticity and and, and realism and creativity and 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 an important
0: um, point that you make as well is that a share doesn't necessarily mean a purchase
3: not at all No. (laughs) And again, that's something where um, the sort of, yeah, the negative side of of viral is that, I mean, there was a, instagram influencer recently where it's hilarious where she'd um, released her own clothing range and got very very narky and disappointed and almost tearful because no one bought it and she was yeah. attacking her followers for not buying it and it's like well you've got no right just because you've got yeah. it shows the, how vacuous and insubstantial a lot of um, you know so-called kind of influencer marketing is because it's all built on bit on sand it's very easy to like something i can do that in like a mm. microsecond but yeah um so in order to drive to purchase you've got to have a bit more kind of Heft behind the idea and a bit more of a relationship going on and be prepared to, yeah, kind of invest time and energy into making sure that people kind of, you know, believe in that product and have a reason to buy it or whatever.
0: So Contagious started off as, was it like a subscription service? Yeah,
3: so, um, it's, two th- I mean, originally it was quite an easy proposition because it was like 2004, we were the first, you know, in the, in the market doing it and the industry hadn't quite kind of caught up. So we were, um... A magazine, because we thought, right, we have to make a physical product because everything was going digital. And we thought if you do something physical, then that's a manifestation of our brand. People won't throw it away. We designed it really beautifully. It was quarterly mm. to keep the standard high. So it was a magazine um, with a DVD folded in. Remember those DVD things? Yeah. And the idea was that we would look at a thousand ideas that were out there in sort of the marketing world that, that quarter and pick the best. 100 or less um, and apply like a challenge solution results format to it so what's the idea what's the, you know so the, the challenge facing the brand was what so why, did, why are they investing money in this idea how was that idea creatively Executed and then the results. So, did it work? You know, what's, what was the effectiveness of that strategy? Um, and so, that you was were basically curating a so we're creating ideas. So the it was, creative
0: industries so that people didn't have to, so every, all the best ideas were sent direct to them.
3: Yeah, yeah so it was a thousand pounds a year, it was a very simple proposition. So, it was magazine, DVD with a online. Kind of repository of all the stuff that went on the DVD, and then over time we just knew that you know the industry was going to get more kind of um, intense, more fractured, more you know more stuff going on. So now um, Contagious is uh, we still do the magazine and it's kind of like you know we sort of love it. People still want it, ironically, but it is a sort of diminishing. You know, if you look at the line on the P and L, it's sort of declining consistently and um but we now do it's like a membership package so the the bulk of contagious is an online kind of membership platform called contagious io which is a supercharged version of the magazine so it's like daily stories a similar principle like we'll filter look at thousands of things and only talk about the very very best um but also because we're in that sort of space of looking at innovation new technology new behaviors trends but having a very sort of as i say opinionated sort of objective feisty kind of opinion um we've been we've got an advisory unit because so many brands would come and say um help us build a better brief we love working with our agencies but sometimes the solutions they're giving us are based on services they can provide we need to spread our wings or just have a bit more of a sense check so could you be our agitators and then we get agencies coming saying um like we know everything's changed but our clients oh god you know they're still stuck in their old ways and they won't change they won't trust us and so can you come and scare them can you show what's going on in the category or just generally inspire them provoke them and we'll take it from there kind of thing so we've got this sort of advisory unit that works around you know creative excellence and trying to get from good to great and, and trying to sort of Provoke better thinking. So that's part of our mission. Like when we first started, our sort of T-shirt brief or the thing on the kitchen wall at the back of the office we shared was um, creativity kicks a living crap out of non-creative work. You know, and that's something we really believe in. And it's like i've been in the advertising industry since God, 1990 and as i told you at the beginning like 95 percent of it's crap so it's like <laughs> let's celebrate the five percent that is great that is powerful and transformative and, and brilliant and creatively kind of yeah genius and uh, let's focus on that so that's always been our, our plan and that's what the book's been about is trying to drag people kicking and screaming to to create the best work possible by innovating but forget not forgetting that you've got to prioritize people first and if you create ideas that are people-centric you'll Kind of got more chance of winning than bashing them overhead with commercialised drivel.
0: Amazing! So the books, *The Contagious Commandments*, available. Yep. All good. All good. Bookstores. Book <laughs> Published
3: by Penguin Business. So uh, the paperback version has just launched um, a year a year later. In um, we managed to persuade Penguin to switch from their choice of red cover for the hardback to uh, *Contagious* magenta and black paperback. So cover. we're very happy with that. So, uh. And where can people find you online? Contagious.com. Super listening. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Thank appreciate
0: you. It. Thanks so much for listening. If you get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.